Almanac, almanac. Why almanac? Where's that from? Arabic? Almanac? Nobody's quite sure. Almanac, anorak. Almanacs are for anoraks of facts, for brainiacs. Facts like amnesiacs are people who forget facts, or that amberjack is an Atlantic fish that preys on squid and shellfish and sardines and big-eyed scab, whatever a big-eyed scab is. Almanac. Almanac. Amberjack. Arawak. What's Arawak? Arawak is a group of indigenous people from South America and the Caribbean. The conquistadors took them as wives and as concubines to create mixed-race children. Titiba was one, the first woman to be accused of practising witchcraft in Salem, the witch trials in 1692. Arawak, Almanac, Aurillac, a French town near Avignon which makes half of all of the umbrellas made in France. La Pont d'Avignon et la Parapluie d'Aurillac. Aurillac. Applejack, Insomniac, Lumberjack, Quarterback, Fanny Pack, Counterattack, Piggyback, Hack Attack, Hack Matack, which is a type of tamarack, which is a species of larch native to Canada. Hookaback, a coarse fabric used for toweling because it's absorbent and for informal shirts, whatever they are. Iliac, connected to the ilium, the widest pelvic bone, Razorback, Steeplejack, Stickleback, a Zodiac. This, this is getting ridiculous. We have a programme to do. The Almanac. The Almanac of Ireland. Stories, oddities, facts and fictions from all over the country. And in this episode, I'm taking you deep into the Tipperary countryside, where we'll uncover mysterious and hidden carvings that may, or may not, be the work of a supernatural secret stonemason. So we're coming along this little laneway, which is like a thick ribbon of grass up the middle of it, and nice hedgerows on either side. And now we're at a cottage with like a corrugated iron roof. I'm with archaeologist Louise Nugent. And as we pass by this unassuming cottage, she points to a spot underneath the gable. Look! At the oddest carving I've ever seen. So that's it? That's it, yeah. So this is... um, As you can see, a small carving of a man's face. And you can see it has two almond-shaped eyes with eyebrows and a very straight nose, a kind of a small mouth and a very fancy um, upturned moustache. Hilarious. It looks, as you said, the moustache looks like some sort of French great uh, lover or sort of bon viveur. Louise has been finding and studying carvings like this one, unusual faces, vernacular art, all over the country. And she's been trying to unearth the stories behind them. Who made them and why? And what are they for, if anything? And, like, normally you see a stone carving. Normally I'm used to seeing them in, like, in a graveyard or a church or something. It's a very solemn thing. And this is, this is the opposite. It's the opposite. It's, it's quite whimsical. And even just its position, it's placed at the side of the house overlooking the little laneway, so it's obviously there to be seen. But there is a whole series of heads from this period that are placed in similar positions. So it's led some people to speculate that maybe there's some sort of protective kind of focus to them, that they're often located over entrances, over laneways passing houses, over um, entrances into farmyards or over entrances into outbuildings. So that there could be some sort of protective um, reason for them being there too. Perhaps some sort of folk magic that's forgotten. 
folk magic, what looks like a mustachioed Frenchman and an abandoned labourer's cottage. This modest carving has all the elements of an intriguing mystery story. It just makes me curious. Like, I want to know why or who he was. And he's got a big chin on him. Yeah, but that's the thing, is that this is something that somebody made, but we don't know who that somebody is or why they made it. But it's here and it's kind of there as a reminder and a link to that person, even though they're forgotten. But while I'm going to have to live with the fact that our mystery Frenchman will remain, unfortunately, a mystery, Louise assures me that there are other carvings and other stories just nearby. There's two more stone heads and there's also a cat with two tails, which I'd love to take you to see. Brilliant. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. So we've pulled in to... um, like, it's a laneway, really, a tiny road over a mountain, over this, did you say, this is the edge of the Knockmill Downs? The edge of the Knockmill Down Mountains, um, and we're in an area called Knock Perry. Louise leads me to a rather drab-looking garden wall in front of a house. Like a concrete wall that, what, looks like from the 60s or 70s, is it? I think it was built in the 1980s, yeah. yeah. So, so it's, it's fairly modern. So why are you bringing to a 1980s ugly concrete because... wall, badly plastered? <laughs> Because if you look in the recess of this pillar, you can see this fabulous 19th century stone carved head. And you can see, like the stone we saw earlier, it's a rounded stone that somebody's worked. And they've carved this really large, strong nose with very sunken eyes and a large mouth. And then at the very back, you can see two very nicely carved ears. Oh, he has a lovely ear there. And the mouth is particularly ungainly. Like, it looks it, like Shrek a little bit it with is. the mouth. It is. It's quite open, um, as if he's going to tell us something or shout at us to go away. As I step back to get a clearer look at this carving, I realise that if I wasn't with Louise, I might have missed this completely. Or worse, I might have dismissed it as a weird piece of amateur artwork, crude, but not much more. I have to admit, though, So far, the story of Irish Shrek isn't totally grabbing me. Still, I'm open to hearing more. The man who carved this, his name was um, James Dorney, and he lived in this area around the 1870s. Shortly after, in the late 1870s, James emigrated to America, to, to New York. His family still live here, and the family tradition holds that this is a carving of James that he made before he emigrated to America. And his great-great-grandnephew told me when he was a boy that the mouth actually had sheep's teeth in it. So are we looking at a vanity carving, a sort of graffiti tag to remind everyone that John Dorney once lived here before he left for a new life? Louise has a kinder theory. Because it looks like quite an older man, I'm inclined to believe that it might be his grandfather, who was also known by the name James. And it may be to do with commemorating the grandfather who died in 1874, who also had the same name as him. Because that face is very old and it looks like a lived face. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like a young man. I think that maybe that's, that was the point of that stone to commemorate his grandfather. Oh, that's lovely. So that's just a theory. And there we have it. A sliver. A glimpse of something that elevates this charmingly clumsy face into something more. The fading imprint of a life that unfolded right here. He 
he was not a trained um, stonemason. So it's, it's a very kind of simplistic and, um, you know, but it's still at the same time, it's very well done, especially for somebody who is an amateur. Yeah, so this isn't master craftsman. This is like the amateur. It's almost primitive. Well, it's not quite. Is it primitive art? I wouldn't necessarily say primitive because that takes away from the skill involved. You're not admitting it's primitive art, and this is someone who puts sheep's teeth into the mouth <laughs> of his skull. I mean, that that's almost pagan. That's like really wild and primitive to be. It to is, be but people taken. have carved stone heads for for generations back from prehistoric times, medieval times. So there's a fascination with humans and heads. Yeah, but most of them, like, it's almost witch doctory of getting sheep from an animal and sticking it into the poor man's, his poor grandfather's head. I think he head. probably just wanted to make it look a little bit more human. <laughs> <laughs> These lovely big dentures. <laughs> OK, I'm now somewhat captivated by John Dorney and his carvings, and I'm curious to know more about him. Louise tells me there's another of his pieces down the road. She leads me to a moss-clad wall and then suddenly leans in to uncover something unexpected. It's actually a carving of a head in profile with a small bowler hat on top. Show me. Can I get in? It's just let's get that in at yeah, the light. I'm seeing see. nothing so far. See, this is the head. The carving is hard to make out. It's like a kidney-shaped head in profile with one enormous eye and wearing what looks like a jaunty bowler hat or jockey's cap. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the bowler hat. It's so Um, heavily moss. And beyond the wall, there's a derelict, modest farmyard. This is where John Dorney was born and grew up. You're pointing at an entirely, totally overgrown, abandoned field of nettles and brambles. You can just see the house then in there at the back. Oh, look at that. I can, yeah. So the the roof is, was attached roof, is this now, or is there slates anywhere there? I think it was originally attached. Looks like Um, a sycamore growing out of the front wall, is it? His father and grandfather were renting land here and were farmers, so he was one of eight children. We know that he worked as a labourer on a number of farms around before he emigrated, but how did he learn to carve stone? Where did he get a chisel? Did he have punches? Was there somebody local who showed him how to do this? These are all questions we don't know, and we actually don't know very much about him once he went to America. We do know he came back once to visit his mother, but that's about it. As we walk back to the car, I'm moved by John's spirit and by his drive to create and to express himself. I'm almost reluctant to leave John and his carvings. But luckily, we don't have to just yet. Louise tells me there's another of his carvings not too far away. And it's a cat with two tails, and that links in with folklore within South Tiberi, connected with a mythical character known as the Gabon Seer. Brilliant, yeah, um, let's see that. We can go and have a look at that one. Perfect, perfect. So we've come down off the mountain and we're now in sort of more lush, more elegant pasture land on the edge of a, of a beautiful, like a, an estate house, it looks like, the, the gorgeous lime trees and beech trees. And there, carved in the gatepost at the entrance of this estate house, is a cat sitting on its hind legs. And on what appears to be two tails. 
So and is he clearly winking at us? Is one eye open and one eye no, half closed? Both no. eyes are open. It's just the the light isn't great, and because of that, the side of the road, it's been discoloured a lot with um, pollution okay, from cars, right, right. from passing cars. But this looks like a big estate. This was a wealthy farm this at some a, point. This was a large farmer's farm. So he would have come here and worked um, as a labourer, like many people would have done to help support their families and perhaps even to put money together for his ticket to America. Then how does a labourer end up doing an artwork that then gets put into the gates, you know, the, such a prestigious place as the gateposts? Well, that, is, that is a good question. Maybe it's because people were aware that he had some talent and he was asked to do this. So it, it's difficult to know but I think all we can do is really surmise and I think given the fact that he had such a corpus of carvings in his own home place that people would have known that about him and they would have known that he was handy with with stone and they may have asked him to create something for them. The mysteries. The mystery, yeah. <laughs> like it's a time before easy access to paints or to mm -hmm. any other way, to, yeah. to computer, to express yourself. So you just took what was around you, just that raw stone, yeah. and you did an animal. And the animal could be totemic, it could have it power, could. it could be an icon. Perhaps, Or perhaps. it could just be a cartoon. Perhaps. But it may also be connected with the folklore, connected with the cats with two tails. Tell so, me. um in this part of Tipperary, there's a lot of folklore associated with a mythical character known as the Gabon Ser. And suddenly, we're taken out of the everyday world and into the realm of magic. According to legend, Ungoban Ser is a mythical master craftsman and builder who often turned up at great building sites, like the one for Holy Cross Abbey in County Tipperary. Having been treated dismissively by the foreman, the story goes that the Gubon Sayre creates a wonderful carving of a two-tailed cat before mysteriously vanishing. When the foreman sees the cat, it's said, only then does he realise he's been in the presence of one of the greatest craftsmen in the world. I like it. So it was almost the low-status artisan who's not getting much credence and not getting the good jobs and the minute he gets a chance it's like he does the coolest um, rap like Eminem or something this is what I can do yeah. if you give me the skill it was like their display of prowess perhaps there. yeah perhaps that's nice I'm delighted that the work of John Dorney has been elevated to that of a mythical master stonemason it's like a fitting acknowledgement for his creative drive and his resilience. If you think about it, most people of that class were illiterate. So something like carving a stone is, is a real link with identifying who you are as well. And, and it's something tangible and lasting. That artistic sentiment in him was innate, was like incipient thing. So. It came out, as you said, despite eight people living in this tiny spot and finding it hard to find tools. So whether he continued that, whether he became a master craftsman or a great sculptor and artist of some type in America? Perhaps, you know, that's something to find out maybe, yeah. if maybe we can. maybe the opposite, maybe he went maybe into not. a mill and never Perhaps. got to be creative again in his life. But I think if you have creativity in you, you'll find a way of expressing it. But maybe not as in a profound way as in stone, maybe in wood or, mm -hmm. or in some way. I like your take. I know so many creative people who repress all their creative <laughs> nature and just never get a chance again. It's remarkable how powerful the creative urge within us is. The desire to leave our mark in the world. 
Dorney's crude carvings stem from the same urge as a Phoenician sculptor or Picasso or a video blogger. I exist, I have things to share with the world, they say. I'm thrilled that his quirky take on things still exists, sealed safely into the mortar of walls. I don't know, I'm just intrigued. I, I love the fact that there are mysteries, that there are things that you can uncover at any time. I'm gonna start looking around stones and in walls. Yeah, you should, it's great fun. <laughs>